Um, so welcome back. We're reading Quest for Justice. And we are starting with, I don't know what chapter number, they don't have numbers, but Krishna Tipping the Scales is the name of the chapter. <clears throat> we're going to get right into it today because we're on a little bit more of a time crunch than usual. Um, we have about 19 pages, so I'm thinking what I'll do is I'll start and then I'll leave off around page like 100 and let you finish this off through 108. Okay. <clears throat> um, and, we can, and then we can see what time we're at if we have time for more discussion uh, or, or if we're running a little low on time. Correct. At least get the, the core of it out. Provocative. All right. All right. So, <clears throat> Krishna, <clears throat> tipping the scales. When we ended yesterday, Kamsa had imprisoned Vasudev and Devaki, and then proceeded to kill Devaki's newborn babies one after another. The tally was six dead sons. Then Devaki became pregnant with number seven, Krishna's older brother, Balaram, who escaped prison by immediately transferring himself to the womb of Rohini, a Yadu princess. By the way, the Ram in the chant Hare Ram refers to Balaram, although it, can, it also can refer to Ramachandra. In any case, Princess Rohini was taking shelter in the rural community of Vrindavan, the place where Krishna would grow up as a child. The residents of Vrindavan, including Nanda, who became Krishna's foster father, were allied with and intimately connected to the Yadus. Thus, when Kamsa began terrorizing his own dynasty, some Yadus fled to the relative safety of Vrindavan. Rohini was among these. Now a word or two about the personality of Yoga Maya. Generally, the term Maya simply refer means mystic power, but for spiritual practitioners with a strong sense of God's illusory energy, Maya is that power of God which tests our sincerity, our devotion, and our commitment to reality by offering various illusory alternatives in the jargon of Srimad Bhagavatam. That illusory spiritual power is called Maha Maya, Maha Maya. And yoga maya is the spiritual power of God that does the opposite, frees us from illusion and brings us to enlightenment. The goddess yoga maya also manages Krishna Leela, Krishna's transcendental pastimes. In the case of Balaram, for example, it was technically yoga maya who transferred him from the womb of Devaki to the womb of Rohini in Vrindavan. Kamsa, of course, knew that Devaki was pregnant with her seventh child, but when he came with murderous intent, he was told that Devaki had miscarried. This made him think, even celestial voices can't be trusted these days. You can't trust celestial voices, who can you trust? <laughs> we of course know that Devaki's seventh child is alive and well in Vrindavan. Just as Krishna is famous as Yashoda Nandan, the son of Yashoda, Balaram is famous as Rohini Nandan, the son of Rohini. Um, hmm. In reference to celestial voices, right? That's a very common thing that you hear, especially in the Mahabharata and other, like, a voice from the sky said, right? And you kind of think, like, what the hell? Um, from my understanding, and I don't remember where I heard this, and so it's not, take it with a grain of salt, and it may not be authoritative, yeah. but it also kind of makes sense to me. Vayu, the god of wind, the personification of air is everywhere. <clears throat> it's like a microphone for everybody. Exactly. So when you hear this voice from the sky, I, from somewhere that I read, it may have, I, I don't, I cannot recall where it was from, but it was my understanding that oftentimes when they heard this unembodied, unembodied voice, the narrator of whatever, yeah. 
it's oftentimes Vayu, or at least the voice is carried by Vayu. Mm. He's the messenger bringing forth that, uh, that makes sense. sound vibration. <coughs> That's just my understanding of it. <clears throat> yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, anybody, please. <laughs> Kamsa's killing of all Devaki's children prior to Krishna's birth was essentially just Kamsa being Kamsa, warming up for the big event. The voice clearly told him that the eighth child would kill him, but he wasn't taking any chances, even if it meant killing innocent infants. Soon, of course, Kamsa would come face to face with his true nemesis. Devaki had become pregnant with number eight, the child that would eventually end his life. The story of Krishna's birth is extremely well known in India and a favorite theme of Indian art. Krishna took birth in Kamsa's prison and to assure his parents that he wasn't a helpless infant, he first appeared in Vasudeva's mind and then entered Devaki's heart and womb and finally came out as almighty Narayan, the same Narayan that you chant this beautiful prayer to each day. Kayena vacha manasendriyaischa budyatmana vanushrit Shritir Svabhava Karomi Yat Sakalam Parashma Narayanayaiva Samarpayam. Whatever I do with my body, speech, mind, and senses, or with my intellect and soul, following my own nature, I fully offer all that to Narayan alone. Wait, it says that you Narayana. chant this beautiful prayer to each day? Yeah. I know. I'm gonna say I didn't. I don't read this. <laughs> I've heard. I've heard it before, but like, oops, I'm supposed to be chanting this over <laughs> I really like that. Yeah, it's pretty cool. From the Vaishnava perspective, Narayan is God. Narayana is God at the office, and Krishna is God at home. At home, people relax, kick off their shoes, and do whatever they want. But at work, they have to dress up and be a little more formal to make an impression. Wow. As God yeah. at the office, or Narayan. Narayana. I never thought about it like that. Krishna has such formal <laughs> responsibilities as taking care of the material universes and so on. And as God at home, or Govinda, Krishna simply relaxes, tends the cows, plays with his friends, and dances with the gopis. When Krishna first appeared in Kamsa's prison, he did so as majestic, almighty Narayana, just to check in, so to speak, and let his parents know who he was. Then, right before their eyes, he transformed into a tiny, helpless baby. And that must have been a lot to process. <laughs> Vasudeva and Devaki had seen Krishna in the form of almighty Narayana transform into their infant son. So somewhere they knew that Krishna was God himself. That is, on one level, there was nothing to fear. At the moment, however, all they could see was this helpless infant lying before them and their hearts filled with fear and overwhelming desire to protect their child. In a sense, many who try to serve God in various ways share the same two moods. We know that God has a plan and is the ultimate controller and doer, yet we still worry about doing things right, what will happen in the future, and so on. So it's natural that in the service of God, we still care about our own and others' decisions, actions, and reactions. In this case, Vasudeva and Devaki understood the obvious. They couldn't simply wait with Krishna in their prison cell for Kamsa to show up. They had to get the baby out, and now. <laughs> At this point, Yogamaya entered the scene, miraculously putting everyone in the palace to sleep, opening the prison doors, and freeing Vasudeva from his shackles. Vasudeva picked up Krishna and escaped, heading toward the Yamuna, which had to be crossed before getting to Vrindavan, Vrindavan, where Krishna would be safe. The night was stormy, and the river was swollen and overflowing, making a crossing would be extremely dangerous. Again, Yogamaya stepped in and simply parted the waters, opening a path for Vasudeva and his son. In this way, Vasudeva was able to take Krishna across the river to Vrindavan, 
The image of Vasudev holding baby Krishna while walking between the parted waters of the Yamuna is a very popular scene often depicted in Indian art. When Vasudeva arrived in Vrindavan, he went to the house of Yasoda, who herself had just given birth to a female child. It had been a difficult, exhausting birth, with the child coming out unexpectedly when no one was there. Vasudeva quietly entered the residence. Yasoda was lying there totally unconscious with her daughter at her side. He leaned down, quickly switched babies, and left Vrindavan with the female child. At this point, we might ask, why didn't Vasudev just run for it? Well, for one thing, his wife would have been immediately killed. And for another, Kamsa had spies and agents everywhere. So there was really nowhere to run to, nowhere to hide, as the saying goes. Vasudeva, in other words, had been dealt a bad hand. So he played the only card he could. He took the female child back to Kamsa's prison, placed her on Devaki's lap, fastened his shackles back on, and acted as if nothing had happened. The next morning, Kamsa was informed that Devaki's eighth child had been born, so he rushed to the prison to kill the infant. But instead of finding his old nemesis, Krishna, or Vishnu, he found a baby girl, and he thought, what's going on here? First a miscarriage, and now this? You just can't trust those celestial voices, can you? Anyway, boy, girl, what does it matter? The infant has to go. And here we come to one of the great scenes of the Srimad Bhagavatam, told in various places, but told best in this work. Kamsa moved toward Devaki. By this work, he, he means Srimad Bhagavatam. Yeah, he's referring to Srimad Bhagavatam. Yeah. Kamsa moved toward Devaki and <clears throat> wrenched the infant from her arms, with Devaki crying and pleading to at least spare her female child. Kamsa wouldn't hear it. He lifted the newborn girl by her legs, his own blood niece, and tried to smash her against the stone floor. But the child slipped from his grip and flew into the sky. Appearing with terrible weapons, she revealed herself as the goddess Durga, who is known by numerous names, Devi, Shakti, Yogamaya, Bhadrakali, and so on. Anyone that's seen her depicted in Indian art knows one thing. You do not mess around with goddess Durga. Um... Goddess Durga is famous as Yogamaya, the superior internal potency of the Supreme Lord. She is also understood to be Krishna's sister, known also as Ekanamsa or Subhadra. Mm -hmm. Goddess Durga also acts as the Lord's inferior external energy, Mahamaya, which covers and bewilders the souls that enter the material world. In any case, the goddess displayed her most terrifying form and spoke to Kamsa in ominous tones. The child who will kill you is already alive on earth. Stop being cruel to Vasudeva and Devaki, or things will only get worse for you. Then she simply disappeared, leaving Kamsa stunned and shaken to the core. With the words of the goddess ringing in his ears, he immediately released Vasudeva and Devaki, sending them on their way. He really was shocked and awed by the whole experience. Then again, Kamsa was quite a resilient asura, and not one to, and not one to succumb to virtue. Wasting no time, his ministers sat him down and gave him something of a demonic pep talk. Relax, we can handle this. Sure, the goddess has powers, but so do we. After all, we're not just the run-of-the-mill human beings. We'll use all the powers at our command, and then let's see them stop us. Kamsa's ministers also warned that the Suras, who had come to, to stop their takeover of Earth, could be anywhere. They were spread all over the countryside, just waiting for their chance. And in a sense, they had Kamsa surrounded. Realizing that the child who would kill him was alive somewhere on earth, Kamsa ordered the killing of every male child born within the last ten days. His henchmen then went everywhere, butchering innocent children. What can I say? That was Kamsa. <laughs> Krishna, of course, was safely enjoying his childhood leela, or pastimes in Vrindavan. 
The tales of Krishna's childhood, boyhood, and youth are, perhaps, the most popular group of stories in Indian history. Having inspired countless productions in the visual arts, music, poetry, theater, books, everything. And among these, Krishna's playful dealings with the cowherd girls of Raj, including the renowned Rasa Leela, are probably the most famous of all. In any case, Kangsa gradually understood that Krishna was in Vrindavan, and thus became determined to kill him. At this point, he did not want to personally kill Krishna, because he thought that might not be prudent. So he sent all these powerful, I don't know what you'd call them, monsters, demons? They were actually great yogis, but yogis that used the dark side of the force, to put it in modern cinematic terms. And they had this yogic power called Kamarupa, literally desire form, which enabled them to transform into any shape they desired. To give one example, the first of these was this evil left-handed witch named Putana, whose natural form was truly hideous. Using Kamarupa, she transformed herself into an exquisitely beautiful young lady on the level of a goddess and entered Vrindavan. Indeed, Putana had become so goddess-like that none of the villagers even asked who she was or what she wanted. She just made her way through the village, entered the house of Krishna, and began admiring the infant. She turned to Yasoda and said, Your child is so beautiful, may I nurse him for a while? And even Krishna's own mother was so beguiled by Putana's beauty that she gave her precious child to a total stranger. Good lord. <laughs> Whoops. I got some candy here for yeah. you. <laughs> now Putana had a plan. Before coming, she had smeared her nipple with a deadly poison with the aim of killing Krishna. She was, after all, an agent of Kamsa. So she placed Krishna on her lap and offered him her breast. Yet even though Krishna was an infant, he wasn't at all fooled. He fully understood the witch's evil intent. He accepted Putana's breast, but gradually began sucking harder and harder, so hard, in fact, that he started to take her life along with her milk. Realizing that her life was being pulled right out of her, Putana panicked and began screaming and shrieking, trying to free herself from the child. Get him off! Someone please get him off! But Krishna just kept sucking and sucking until the witch was dead. Of course, after she died, Putana was unable to maintain her artificial form. And suddenly, before everyone's eyes, the beautiful goddess changed back into this gigantic, ghastly thing. But Krishna thought, well, I did drink her breast milk, so technically she was a mother. And on that basis, despite the fact that she had come to kill him, Krishna granted Putana liberation. This is the spirit of Krishna Leela. Krishna's a good sport about these things, even with his would-be assassins. <laughs> Incredible. He's not a sore winner, huh? <laughs> yeah. He's like, thanks for playing. <laughs> yeah. Everyone wins. <laughs> this pastime also illustrates an important point about Krishna. God doesn't become God by this or that practice, and he doesn't require growing up to reach his full potential. God is always God in all circumstances even as a so-called baby, omniscient, omnipotent, and so on. Omnipotent, right? That's how you say it. Omnipotent, and so on. Yeah. In any case, Kamsa sent many such superhuman agents to kill Krishna, and all the different forms they took were truly astonishing, from a heron as big as a hill, to an eight-mile-long serpent, to a gigantic donkey, and so on and so forth. Essentially, Krishna had this daily demon-killing festival, easily destroying all comers without even disturbing his play. He also danced with the gopis, stole butter, lifted Govardhan Hill, and performed many other famous pastimes. Of course, we won't go into these today, but anyone interested can find them in the 10th canto of Srimad Bhagavatam. Meanwhile, back in the Himalaya mountains, the Pandavas were also enjoying their childhood. 
Arjuna was the same age as Krishna, Bhima was one year older, Yudhisthira two years older, and the twins one year younger. By the way, Hima in Sanskrit means cold or snow, and Alaya means place, so Himalaya, the place of snow, or the place of cold. <laughs> An apt name. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> now to understand the Mahabharata and things that will happen later. It's important to remember that the Pandavas grew up not as Kshatriyas or warriors, but rather as Brahmanas, and more as boy sages. I mean, they were these little kid yogis running around the hills with deerskin and dreadlocks. You know that matted hair you don't bother brushing three hours a day? So these were the Pandavas, and this portrait will help explain some of their later behavior, because even though the Pandavas were powerful warriors, they were sometimes reluctant to use their own power. Yeah, I think it's interesting that they name people that the names in Sanskrit are all like very apt. They're not like they're not Describing they don't like have these like the weird like they just describe the people or they describe mm -hmm. the place, they describe it's just like a description of like the yeah, person's very... tendencies, the person's qualities, yeah. whatever, their dharma, whatever. It's just like Well even like very... we've talked about before, Krishna like Krishna God has many one. names and just like when you're just like with us, right? You do something as a kid and you earn a nickname. Your kid, your friends call you something. Your right. parents call you something else. You're... So based on your activities, you acquire different names. The name describes the activity yeah. or the person performing the activity. So therefore, <clears throat> you can really call God by any name that you want. We just choose Krishna because of the definition. All attractive, which sums up all of Krishna's qualities, all yeah. of God's qualities in one name. Because yeah. God is infinite and he's the creator of everything, he is magnetic. He, is, he attracts everything, <clears throat> willingly or unwillingly. Yeah. He just, he attracts. So that's why we, yeah. Yeah. No, it's very, or Pandu, yeah. the pale one. The like, <laughs> what's up, like whitey? The Amba, the Amba, the Amba, the little Amba and the little itty bitty Amba. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's like very just to the point. The Pandavas had actually taken birth on earth to assist Krishna in his mission of saving the world from the Asura insurrectionists. Mentioned several times in our talks, recall that Krishna originally told the creator Brahma to instruct the Asuras, the gods, to begin taking birth on earth. The specific instruction was, Yadushupajanyatam, you, along with your wives, should take birth in the Yadu dynasty. Throughout the text of the Mahabharata, the Pandavas were constantly called the Bharatas because they were Pandu's sons by law, making them part of the Kuru dynasty, also known as the Bharata dynasty. Which is Maharaj Bharat, the one who then turned into the deer mm -hmm. that yeah. we read in the other book. That's like yeah. great, 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 great grandfather. Yeah. <clears throat> Genetically, however, their only earthly genes came from Kunti, who was a Yadu princess. Not telling you, telling me. Yeah. <laughs> telling you, for anyone following, sorry. In this sense, they were truly Yadus, since their fathers were not of this world at all, but rather some of the universe's greatest gods. Apart from this, the Pandavas also had a very special connection with Krishna. Briefly, it is understood within the tradition that the Pandavas, Kunti, Draupadi, who will soon meet, and other great personalities of the Mahabharata are actual, actually eternal associates of Krishna. These associates travel with Krishna from universe to universe, displaying wonderful, adventurous pastimes that people can then talk and sing about, mm -hmm. and in this way practice bhakti yoga. So there's a very special connection between Krishna, the Pandavas, and the Yadus. 
The Yadus, of course, knew that Krishna was now on earth. So they sent their personal priest into the mountains to inform Pandu and tell him that the Asuras were becoming more aggressive. Unfortunately, Pandu was not long for this world. At a certain point, the Brahmana Yogi's curse finally took effect. The season was spring, a romantic time of year for those so inclined. High in the mountains, the wildflowers were blooming and the day was exceptionally warm. Pandu and Madri were still relatively young, and in this charming atmosphere, with Madri scantily dressed, she looked especially alluring because it was just them practicing yoga in the mountains, surrounded by yogis. And somehow noticing Madri's level of appearance, lovely appearance, Pandu was struck and struck hard. With this overwhelming attraction, this uncontrollable desire, he had become a perfect yogi, the master of his senses. Oh, he became struck with this overwhelming attraction, this uncontrollable desire. Mm -hmm. He had become a perfect yogi, the master of his senses, a self-realized soul. But on that particular day, in that particular circumstance, because the curse was now acting, nothing mattered. Pandu approached Madri with only one thing in mind, and it wasn't yoga. <laughs> as soon as Madri saw the look in Pandu's eyes, she immediately understood his intention, and of course she was terrifying, no knowing that this would lead to her husband's death. First, she tried reasoning with him, but it soon became apparent that Pandu had lost all reason. Then she tried physically keeping him away, but good luck with that, he was after all Pandu. A king so strong that no prince dared challenge him at Kunti Svayambara. How could little Madri resist his embrace? She couldn't, of course, and at that moment of enjoyment, Pandu died. There's a very moving scene where Madri lets out this terrible cry that's heard in all directions, because they're up in the mountains where everything echoes. And as soon as Kunti hears that sound, she knows exactly what it means and exactly what has happened. She gathers the five bo Pandava boys mm -hmm. and together tells them, stay here, don't move. Then leaving her children, she sets off in the general direction of the cry to confirm what she already knows. Pandu's death, of course, changes everything. The loss for themselves and the world is incalculable. And all of them, widow widows and fatherless sons, are overwhelmed with grief. Their lives will never be the same again, and now they must decide what to do. In ancient Vedic civilization, there was a practice known as sati, whereby a kshatriya wife could voluntarily enter her husband's funeral pyre, and thus follow him into the next world. I'll say just a few words about this practice before going on. In later Indian history, sati became a type of murderous forced practice, eventually outlawed by the British. Unlike ancient sati, this later version literally forced unwilling women to walk into their husband's funeral pyre to die along with him. Of course, there are cases even today of couples who are so committed to each other that when one becomes afflicted with a terminal illness, the other chooses to die along with his or her mate. I remember reading about Arthur Kostler, the famous British author, who found out he had terminal cancer and decided to commit suicide. When the time came, Kostler's wife decided to join him, saying, I cannot live without Arthur. Despite mm -hmm. certain inner resources, double suicide has never appealed to me. But now Arthur's incurable diseases have reached a stage where there is nothing else to do. In any case, we see in ancient Vedic civilization, what we see in ancient Vedic civilization is that wives who were advanced in yoga, actually had the power of yogagni, or yoga fire, a form of mm -hmm. mystical self-immolation. This can be seen in the st story of Sati, the wife of Shiva, which can be found in the fourth canto of Srimad Bhagavatam. In fact, the practice known as Sati was probably named after her. As the story goes, Sati's father, Daksha, insulted Shiva during a great sacrifice, and Sati became so upset that she no longer wanted a body. 
that had been received from such a great offender. So she, so she simply sat down, went into samadhi, yoga trance, and created this yogagni, this fire that emerged from her own body to consume it. This is to consume, from her own body to consume it. This is how she gave up the body connected to daksha and came back as parvati. In any case, very advanced souls could actually go through the fire into a higher realm. I mean, don't try this at home. This is definitely not something we should do. This was actually done in former ages when people had powers and levels of consciousness that we can't even imagine, mm -hmm. let alone imitate. You want to take over? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that story, basically, Daksha... He was being real rude to Shiva. He was being rude to Shiva because Shiva, you know, is the, he is the demigod, the, the personification... Well, A, he is the greatest devotee of Krishna, of Lord Vishnu. And yeah. B, he also is the demigod. There's a very nice book, actually, um, that my dad bought me. I don't remember the name of it, but it's like a kid book. Yeah. It's very well illustrated, and it explains the whole creation story from the Srimad Bhagavatam, but like in a very kid-friendly way. Yeah. And basically, so you have... Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva. Vishnu is, like, Hinduism is, is monotheistic. The idea is that <clears throat> Krishna doesn't, Krishna at home doesn't want to be bothered by yeah. creation. So he therefore expands himself as Vishnu, and Vishnu then expands his energy and yeah. creates Brahma and Shiva. Yeah. Brahma is the actual physical creator, but he creates with the instructions that are given to him by Vishnu. And then Brahma, Brahma's anger, there's a, there's a story where Brahma's anger becomes personified as Lord Shiva. Lord Shiva is also an expansion of Lord Vishnu's energy through mm. the conduit of Lord Brahma. Mm. So Lord Brahma and Lord Shiva under Lord Vishnu are the two most, right. they're the highest of the yeah. demigods. And Shiva is the personification and the demi or the, the demigod in charge of the, there's the three modes, you know, goodness, passion, ignorance. Yeah. So Lord Vishnu takes charge of the mode of goodness. And Lord Brahma takes charge of the mode of passion. Lord Shiva takes charge of the mode of ignorance. And because he's in charge of the mode of ignorance, he's often portrayed as, you know, he resides in he likes yeah. to hang out in cemeteries. He smears his body with ash. Yeah. He smokes marijuana. And like, right. he just, he's chilling, doing his own thing. But he's, he's really an elevated yeah. Vaishnava. Yeah. But on the, from the material point of view, he appears to be this kind of like yeah. uh, shady character. So Daksha was like trash talking him like go back to the yeah. cemetery where you come from yeah, yeah. you've smeared your body with the ashes of dead people like get yeah. the hell out of here and that's when sati was like oh hell no <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> um yeah yeah that's, anyway that's crazy returning to the aftermath of pandu's death both kunti and madri had the power of yogagni and thus knew that wherever Pandu went, they could join him, and both wanted to go. And they could join him because, like in the Bhagavad Gita, you know, Krishna says, at the time of your death, whatever state of mind you have achieved, that is where you will go. So if 
your final act as the spouse is I'm giving up my body, but in a it's it's a willing it cannot be forced yeah. on you. Yeah, she's doing it out of pure of love and devotion to her husband, and she does it voluntarily. And because that is her state of mind at the time of death, yeah, it dictates that she will follow him into the next life. Because the idea is that yeah. if we choose to take conscious control of our karma, yeah, we can dictate what happens to us in the next life. Yeah. <clears throat> Both wanted to go, but Madri strongly argued against Kunti's going. Because normally it would be the older, the eldest wife, because Kunti yeah. was the senior. She had the right to go. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Madri strongly argued against Kunti's going. Number one, she said, at the exact moment of Pandu's death, his desire was to be with me. So I have to go with him to fulfill that desire. And secondly, let's face it, you're my spiritual superior. Thus, you will be able to raise all five sons as your own without discrimination, something I may not be able to do. Wow, that was like a, wow. a double-edged compliment, yeah. <laughs> like a compliment and a disc. <laughs> First she said yeah. his d desire was to be with me, yeah. but then also she like, uh, you know, gave her little kudos there. Uh, yeah. Madri had confidence that Kunti was on such an exalted spiritual level that she would be able to view all five sons with equal vision. Those were Madri's arguments, and Kunti reluctantly accepted them. Yeah, it'd be kind of messed up if they both jumped on the f jumped into yeah. the fire and left the and kids, the kids there. Like, there, like okay, <laughs> there are <laughs> poor kids, man. There are actually two different versions of Madri's death in the Mahabharata because there were different revelations, different stories coming down from different parts of India. And the tendency in Indian history was to be inclusive, meaning that instead of choosing between different versions of stories, it was common to keep them all. Mm. That's interesting. In the first version, Pandu is cremated right there in the mountains and Madri immediately enters the flames to join him. But it's the second version that personally interests me the most because it develops into one of the most visually dramatic scenes of the entire Mahabharata. It is this version that I'll try to describe now. High in the Himalayan mountains, after discussing with Kunti and entrusting the twins to her care, Madri simply gives up her life, having the power to leave her body at will. Remember that both Kunti and Madri have spent years practicing a very severe discipline of yoga, which has made them very powerful yogis, or yoginis, I guess the female, in their own right. Thus left behind, I don't know if yogini is an actual, is that just like some term devotees came up with? Yogi Possibly, I don't know, he's not saying it, so <clears throat> it could be. Could he just call Thus them left, yeah. Thus left behind, with the bodies of both Madri and Pandu before them, Kunti and the Pandavas are overcome by a profound sense of loss, wondering what comes next. Soon word comes from Dhritarashtra that she and the children should return to Hastinapur. Those familiar with the area's topography know that when walking down from the Himalayan Mount, or Himalaya Heights, one gradually comes to the foothills and then to the Ganges Valley, which is essentially the main population center. With this setting in mind, we can try to picture this royal funeral procession winding its way down the mountain to the foothills, and then to the valley below, bearing the bodies of Pandu and Madri, the king and the queen of the Kurus. Walking beside them are Kunti, the surviving queen, and the five Pandavas, Yudhisthira, Bhima, Arjuna, Nakula, and Sahadev, who at the time are between 9 and 12 years old. Mm. 
<clears throat> Coming down from the highest mountains in the world, they are accompanied by the great brahmanas and yogis that have lived with them in the wilderness for all these years. As the procession reaches the foothills and begins its journey down the valley, we can imagine the crowds of people that have come to catch a glimpse of these legendary figures unseen for many years. Ooh, sorry. A few words now about the five Pandava princes <clears throat> who had lived isolated who had lived isolated lives high in the Himalaya mountains hills, sorry, and had been raised in innocence by parents who were strict yoga practitioners. To this point in their lives, these children had never seen a horse, an elephant, a city, or an army, let alone a palace and all the trappings and fineries of palace life. In fact, they had never even seen more than a few dozen people together in one place at one time. Wow. Culture shock, right? Yeah. <laughs> so when picturing the five Pandavas coming down from these hills, mingling with the procession's adult entourage, picture five child yogis with suntan faces, long matted hair, deer skin clothes, and so on. <laughs> Think little Vyasas. <laughs> From a psychological point of view, one can imagine the impact on these young boys of all the recent shocks in their lives. First, their father passes away, followed by the death of one of their mothers, because Madri was a mother to them all. So almost overnight, the twins had been orphaned, and, the three, oh, and Kunti's three sons have lost two-thirds of their parents. Add to this the fact that for the first time in their lives, the five Pandava, Pandava princes are entering... Not just an ordinary society, but their own imperial capital. They're going straight from this remote yoga retreat, 10,000 feet up in the Himalaya mountains, to Hastinapur, the hustling, bustling capital of the Kuru dynasty. Well, really the capital of the entire known yeah. earth. So we can just imagine what it must have been like for them. Earlier I mentioned, God, I mean, that would be like basically taking someone from, you know, some Native American boy from back in the day, time-traveling them to, like, New York City. Yeah. Then, this is your... Hey! <laughs> this is your kingdom. Yeah. <clears throat> Earlier I mentioned the crowds, watching from below as the funeral procession came closer and closer. This is another really moving scene, which everyone looked... with everyone looking at the Pandavas and asking... Are those little ascetics the sons of Pandu? They must be. Who else could they be? And of course, all the people remembered Pandu, their beloved king, and how he had saved the Kuru dynasty and restored peace to the world. Pandu, their great hero, who had now passed away, leaving Kunti and these little marvelous little princes, I'm sorry, and these marvelous little princes behind. It is said that the people so loved Pandu that when they saw the procession, coming from the foothills and approaching the capital, the entire population rushed past the city gates to receive their dead king. In fact, Pandu's death had left the people so overwhelmed with grief that for several days no one even bothered to return to Hastinapur. Wow. <laughs> they literally slept on the ground, mourning the loss of Pandu and waiting for the procession to arrive. And that's because the people understood that the king really loves us and he takes care of us. Yeah. Like... Only we had leaders like that today. These descriptions, I think, made it, make it crystal clear that the five Pandavas would soon become wildly popular in Hastinapur. 
Once seeing and getting to know them, the people absolutely adored them and were waiting for the day that a Pandu heir would be crowned king. This, of course, brings us back to Dhritarashtra, for whom none of this was good news. By Dharma, Dhritarashtra had now become the legal father of the Pandavas, and what a dangerous father he was, with all that resentment and ambition burning inside. His nephew, his nephews were innocent little boys who had just lost their dad and were looking for Dhritarashtra. Good Lord. We're looking to Dhritarashtra for love, affection, and shelter. Indeed, this is what made Dhritarashtra's later actions so despicable. Because, let's face it, his only real aim was to take the kingdom from the Pandavas and hand it over to his son. The only thing holding him back was the sense that he had to move with caution. He had to avoid going too far, too soon, and possibly provoking a popular uprising. This brings up an amazing feature of ancient Vedic civilization that is worth mentioning here. The fact that there was freedom of speech. Yeah, no. you're criticizing the king? Off with your head! Yeah. <laughs> it was not like that. You can find many occasions in the Mahabharata where people would go right into the town square and criticize or rebuke the king in very strong language. And there is not the slightest hint in the text that such actions were considered inappropriate or illegal. And that's because everyone, including the average citizens, all understood what dharma was. They knew what their dharma was, but they also knew what the dharma of the king was. And so yeah. when the king wasn't doing their job, the people would call him out on it. Yeah. And, yeah. <clears throat> there was no punishment, repercussions, or reprisals for such speech. People had the freedom to criticize the government in this civilization. Thus, Dhritarashtra's fear of public reaction was legitimate, and something that crops up here and there throughout the Mahabharata. You know, I mean, God forbid they can always just call in Parasharam there and... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> in any case, it's not that Dhritarashtra was himself an Asura, he was just blind, not only physically, but in other ways as well. Duryodhana, however, was another matter. He was a full-blown Asura insurrectionist, determined to take over the earth by any means. Knowing that his father really wanted him to be king, yet seeing that he was hesitant when it came to drastic measures... Wow, this is very nice to hear him describe like the psychology behind it <clears throat> uh, be between their relationship. Mm-hmm. Duryodhana decided to take matters into his own hands and get rid of the Pandavas once and for all. Thus, only a few days after Kunti and the Pandavas arrive in Hastinapur, Vidura, the wisest of the three brothers, calls them aside to warn that their lives are in danger, that a plot is underway to assassinate them. Assassinate? First they lose a father and mother, then they're thrust into this unknown world, and now, after everything that's happened, someone is trying to kill them. What an introduction to life as a Kuru prince, and that is the state of the Pandavas. This is like, this is like a six-season finale from like the Game of Thrones or something, wow. but next level. <laughs> it's so good. Now let's return for a few minutes to Krishna in Vrindavan and catch up on events there. To go over the geography one more time, Hastinapur was situated in the north. It's like north-central India several hundred miles like below the Himalayas, yeah. on the Ganges River, and perhaps a hundred miles or so southwest of Hastinapur was the village of Vrindavan with Mathura nearby. Mathura was the city where Kamsa, yeah. yeah. Let's recall that Kamsa had been sending one demoniac 
demoniac yogi after another to kill Krishna, but that so far all had failed. Frustrated, Kamsa concludes that what he needs is a home court advantage. He needs to get Krishna on his own turf, so to speak. His plan is to lure Krishna okay, to Mathura, the seat of Kamsa's military power, and kill Krishna there. So he asks Akrura to travel to Vrindavan to bring Krishna back. <clears throat> Akrura is his personal charioteer and minister who happens to secretly be on Krishna's side. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, which leads to one of the most famous scenes in all of Indian literature, the gopis being heartbroken at Krishna's leaving, thus throwing themselves in front of Akrura's chariot to physically prevent him from going. Of course, Krishna does leave, and the gopis aren't trampled, just devastated at their loss. Thank God, right? But they're not trampled. Yeah. <laughs> in any case, Krishna travels to Mathura with his older brother Balaram, where Kamsa had arranged a wrestling match that he is sure will end with Krishna's death. This type of wrestling, by the way, wasn't like WWE wrestling. For instance, where combat is basically a choreographed affair. What they called wrestling back then was more like today's mixed martial arts, which is more or less no holds barred. You can punch, you can kick, you can do almost anything to take down your opponent. And Kamsa had specifically selected his greatest wrestlers, two gigantic killing machines, to fight with Krishna and Balaram, two 12-year-old farm boys. When the time came for the match, even the audience was shocked at the imbalance, and they thought, what's going on here? Little did they know. To make a long story short, even before the wrestling match, Krishna and Balaram took it upon themselves to make all kinds of mischief in Mathura, starting with taking the cloth that was meant for Kamsa, having it tailored and wearing it themselves. Next, in a scene reminiscent of the Ramayana, Krishna went to some sacrificial arena, grabbed this gigantic bow, and pulled its string till the whole thing snapped like a twig. Then at the gate of the wrestling arena, Krishna and Balaram confronted a large elephant, a large killer elephant, purposely placed there to block their way. When the elephant's caretaker ordered it to attack Krishna, Krishna killed the beast with his own broken tusk. Dude, someone really needs to turn this into a legit, authentic cool. TV show. Oh my god. It would just be... Finally, in the wrestling arena, Krishna and Balaram easily killed not only these two great wrestlers, but many others as well until all the rest simply ran away. Kamsa, of course, was just fuming with anger and frustration. He ordered the stadium band to stop playing, kind of childish, don't you think, and wanted Krishna and Balaram run out of town. Then, flying into a terrible rage, bordering on madness, he ordered the death of almost everyone in sight, from Nanda to Vasudev to Ugrasena, his own father, Kamsa's own father. Mm -hmm. At this point, Krishna thought, okay, that's it. I've had quite enough of Mr. Kamsa and his persecution of the Yadu dynasty. Now imagine one of those giant Super Bowl stadiums, and then imagine Kamsa all the way at the top, in one of those fancy owner's boxes, looking down over the field. And remember, Kamsa is no ordinary human being. He's a powerful Asura from another world, a person who could easily dominate and overwhelm even the greatest human fighter. Then imagine Krishna rushing all the way up to the top box to finish Kamsa once and for all. Kamsa, of course, realizes that his time has come and pulls his sword to kill Krishna. So Krishna just knocks off Kamsa's crown, grabs him by the hair, throws him down several stories to the floor below, effectively ending Kamsa's Ooh. life. Dang. 
It's an amazing scene, this little child rushing to the top of the arena, grabbing this powerful Asura and tossing him out like a rag doll. And of course, you can imagine the shock. I mean, this is going on right in front of the whole city. It's like, yeah, the Roman Colosseum. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the gladiators jumping up out and, hey! Luckily, he wasn't a very nice guy, so I don't think too many people were upset Oh, no, they happened. were, they were probably, I mean, yeah, they were. Probably cheering. Then, just to show everyone that this great, fearful tyrant is really dead, Krishna grabs his lifeless body and drags it across the ground like a lion dragging a dead prey. Grabbed him by the hair and drug him. <laughs> Damn. And that was the end of Kamsa. So all this is going on in Mathura at roughly the same time that the Pandavas come to live under the so-called care of their uncle, <clears throat> whose only real desire is to get his son on the Kuru throne. The adventure continues tomorrow. Cool. Very good. Mm. Very exciting. Just getting started. Ah, I can't wait. So much more to go. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Yeah. Uh, like I said, we're kind of on the time schedule today. His kids aren't at school, so he's got to get back to them. But thank you for listening. Let us know your thoughts. Share with a friend. Like, subscribe, all that good stuff. Follow if you're listening yeah. to us on Spotify, whatever the case may be. And we will see you guys uh, next week for us. Yep. Whatever order you're watching this in. But yeah. Five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> whatever your preference may be, or never again. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All Thank right. you guys. Thank you.